Well, let's open our Bibles today to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 is today we look at some principles of ministry, beginning in verse 24, where it says, And he, speaking of Jesus, he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. I know most of you know the background here. Um, It's important to know the background, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ is about to die. And so before he dies, he's giving his final words, his words of instruction to his disciples. And um, we know, and you probably know the principle, that when an individual is about to die, it just seems like the things that are really important in life, they just kind of become... You know, there in the forefront, you kind of dial in on those things. Uh, We know that when Jesus was here, he ministered to the thousands. You know, he fed the the thousands and he spoke to the hundreds. But in the end, it was just a a handful of guys. It was 12 guys that he would pour into. And that they would then carry the gospel out to the ends of the earth. And so that's kind of what he's doing here. He's giving these 12 guys... Uh, principles of ministry because we know that that's God's heart you know that the Lord Jesus Christ if you're a Christian here today he died for you on that cross and you placed your faith in him and the moment you placed your faith in him you were instantly justified just as if you've never sinned that's our positional standing as Christians and so you know it's a it's a great thing but you know, I'm sure you've heard this before, Then, so then why doesn't he just take us home? You know, once he makes you a Christian, why are you still here? And the simple answer is that through your life, he wants to bring glory to himself, and he wants to use our lives in different ways in the ministry. And so what we find here is that the Lord is teaching them the principles of ministry, and, and how can we be effective, really, as Christians And the first word I want to give you today is this word, humility. Or you might even put down servanthood. But it's this word that really is important for us as Christians that Jesus shares that really the disciples didn't understand yet. Notice again there in verse 24 that they were disputing among themselves. They were arguing. They were fighting. And what was the problem? They were fighting about who would be the greatest who would be the greatest and that's what we find a lot of times our our nature is we're going to see that that's the mentality of the world that they want that top-notch title they want that position of power and uh, unfortunately we find that the disciples were constantly fighting about this Now, when we put the Gospels together, we know that this is actually the third time that they were arguing over this issue. 
Earlier in Luke 9:46 to 48, they were arguing on the road as to who would be considered the greatest. Back in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, they were arguing again about who would be the greatest. As a matter of fact, that was the time when James and John sent their mom to Jesus, asking him for positions of power on the right hand and on the left in his coming kingdom. And then again here, we see they are arguing about who would be considered the greatest in the kingdom. Now, the ironic thing is this, that all three times when they're arguing about who would be considered the greatest, it's always right after Jesus talks about the cross. And, you know, that's kind of weird. Here we see the Lord is telling them, remember, in Luke 22, I'm going to die for you. This is my body. This is my blood. And then, boom, there they are about who's, who's going to be the greatest, you know. You know, and I and I don't know if you guys struggle with this. I, I I wonder. I'm like, no, people don't really struggle with this, do they? And and the answer is that they do. That there's people out there that say, you know what? I don't see why he's the pastor. I should be the pastor. I'm a better leader. I'm a better teacher. I'm a better man. I'm a better Christian. I, I don't know why she's the leader. You know, I, I'm a better. You know, and you can, for whatever reason, and in their heart, they're jealous. In their heart, they're envious of that position, of that power, of that, you know, title, that, that task, that authority. And we see it. It's an ugly part of who we are at times. And the Lord is saying, you know what? You really shouldn't be arguing about things like that. The disciples struggled with this, and Jesus then spoke to them, and he says, listen, that's the... That's the mentality of the lost. He said to them there in verse 25, the king of the Gentiles, they exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors or friends. In other words, they see it as a positive thing when a leader is authoritative. He says, but, right there, he says, not so, in verse 26, among you. This whole power trip, a lot of times in the world, it's a common belief and it creeps into the church. Some parents really like it when their son's baseball coach is this powerful, authoritative, dominant leader. Oh, I like that coach over there because, man, you know, he whips them into shape and he, you know, and, and sometimes they'll cuss at them and they'll make them do a, a thousand push-ups and they'll threaten them. And they just use all this authority to, to mold them into what they think they need to be. And you know what? Yeah, they're going to probably do you know, a certain element of molding, but they're also teaching them how to lead. And God says the, the way that the world leads was all their authority with bullying people around is not the way it's supposed to be in the kingdom of God. You see, the disciples struggled with this whole authority, humility, servanthood lesson. Jesus taught them the whole authority, humility, servanthood lesson. And he not only taught them, he modeled it for them. Because look again, it says in verse 27, uh, for he who, who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? And, and the answer from a technical real perspective is the one who sits is is greater right but he says 
Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. You see, we are not to look for or even long for that power or that position of authority. It shouldn't be in our hearts. You know, what I've found in the kingdom, and I I pray that you guys would see it, is that uh, we just need to be faithful where he's placed us. And, and when you're faithful where he's placed you, you might stay there. First Corinthians chapter 4 says one day when we're judged, that's all we're going to be judged on, on our faithfulness. But I found this, that some guys are not faithful where they are because they're looking to want the next level. And God says, how can I entrust that to you when you're not even faithful where I placed you? And so if you're faithful there then who knows, maybe some way, somehow, someday, God will then entrust more to you, and we call it a so-called position, but it's really nothing. And if you ever do find yourself there, then when you're there, understand that the authority that you have is only so that you can serve others. Not boss them around, not have a power trip. Don't get me wrong. I understand that as a leader, there are times when you've got to be, you know, I guess you could say a little demanding or a little commanding. I know that's the way it is as leaders, but the heart really is to be a different heart. Look at what Jesus says right there. It says in verse 26, He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And, and so you're like, well, what does that mean? Is Jesus saying that you've got to be young in order to be a leader? No, I think the answer is found in First Peter chapter 5, verse 5, where it says, Likewise, you younger people, be submissive to your elders. And so when he's telling the leaders to be like the younger, he's actually telling the leaders to be submissive. And there's a lot of leaders that say, no, you submit or be hit. That's why some leaders are, right? And they like to have this power trip. And, and God says, no. You know, as a leader, it's not always, you know, hey, it's my way or the highway. No, it's God's way. And sometimes God will speak through those who are, you know, under you. The other day I was uh, talking to a husband and a wife, and they're kind of going through some marital issues, things like that. And I've been kind of meeting with them every once in a while. And so I asked the husband, I said, what's the Lord been showing you? What's the Lord been showing you? As a husband. And you want, you want to know what he told me? He told me submission. Submission. Now most of you husbands are here like, well that doesn't make any sense. You know, like the wife is supposed to be the one who submits in this marital relationship. And I tell her that every day, right? <laughs> but remember in the book of Ephesians, before God commands the woman to submit to their husbands, remember he says in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, submitting to one another. And this is the leader of the home. And there are those times and there is that heart and there is this teaching of Christian ministry and life that we are to have this element of, you know, submission. And we have to be so careful that we don't have this power trip and this authority because I'm telling you this right now, that if you're there like Jeremiah chapter 45 verse 5 and you are a Baruch and you are seeking great things for yourself, the Bible says seek them not because that is not the heart 
of a leader. And I remember even when I was, you know, just growing up in the church and just serving in different ways, you know, I failed the Lord many times, but I never had that mentality, oh, I'm going to be a pastor one day. Even when I was an assistant pastor, that wasn't my mentality. My mentality was this is where I am and I will be faithful here and my life is in his hands. And that attitude of, you know, humility, not longing for that position, just giving that to God, being faithful where you are. And then if you do find yourself one day, somehow, some way, someday there, then still having a heart, prayerfully a heart of being a servant. Because that's what Jesus taught and that's what Jesus modeled. And that works itself out in so many ways. Maybe you're here today and, you know, you're at home and you're like, you know, hey, woman, you know, wash the dishes. Sink's full. What's up? You know, hey, woman, it's time for dinner, right? You're a little late, 15 minutes. What's up? Hey, dude, why don't you do the dishes, man? Why don't you cook? Why don't you put gas in the car? Why don't you wash the car? Why don't you take out the trash? Why don't you pick up your clothes? Why don't you vacuum? And you just go on and on and on. You're like, well, it's not my job. Well, you know what? We're, we're, we're supposed to be servants. You might even iron your own clothes one day. Try it. It's not that difficult, man. <laughs> you know, I remember even here, and I'll tell you, and I struggle with this. We all do, you know. You know, being a pastor, you're like, okay, well, the days are gone. When I first started the ministry, I used to wash toilets. I did it for seven years, and... You know, now I'm a pastor now, and I get to pray and read my Bible 24-7. And the Lord says, not a chance. No way, you know. And this needs to be done, and that needs to be done. I remember when I went to the crusade in Las Vegas, it was a really, really good experience for me because they said, hey, you want to come over here and hang out with the pastors? And I says, no, I'll just do whatever needs to be done, you know, expecting to have, you know, some type of a great, you know, assignment. And so they gave me a T-shirt. They said, here, you're an usher. And they put me up at the very top. And I remember the section that I was ushering, okay, I was ushering. There was nobody there. <laughs> I almost wanted to call somebody up and say, hey, um, this is Pastor Manny, you know, <laughs> from Calvary Chapel on Money, and I'm, you know, as an usher. And then the Lord said, no, this is a great lesson for you. You know what I really called you to do is I called you to pray. And I remember when I went on the missions trip to Vizcaino, Mexico, you know, down there, it's a vigorous missions trip, you know, 10-hour drive into the heart of Baja, Mexico. And, and when I got there, you know, again, here's Pastor Manny available. You want me to teach? No problem, you know. And, and you know what my assignment was for the whole weekend? The trash. The trash. And so not only were there flies everywhere, they were concentrated in the trash can. And my job was whenever the trash was full to empty the trash. And, you know, and, and, and I was praising God for that. Because, you know, as leaders, the Lord needs to keep us in that place. He needs to bring us to that place of reminding us that we're nothing without him. Reminding us of what Jesus did. He said, you know, I'm at the table and I'm the one that's sitting. And in, in a technicality and in all reality, I have the greatest position of all. But what does the Bible say in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself, right? And he became a bondservant. And 
You know, he humbled himself to the point of death and even the death of the cross. And in the process, what did he do? He saved our souls. You see, and that's the mentality that we need to have in the ministry. That, you know, we have to have this humility, this attitude of Christ. Remember in John chapter 13, as he's teaching them all these different things, this one he gives them a visual lesson on, remember? And when everybody's feet were all stinky and dirty and smelly, how many of you here like feet? I know some people like feet and some people hate feet. I remember I had a friend, he just he couldn't see anybody's feet for some reason. I, I don't know. But imagine him being in dirty, you know, toe jam and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and, uh, and then you're sitting there, and everybody's feet are dirty, and nobody steps up to, 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 to wash feet. It was the, the task of the lowest servant. That was really the culture of the day. And what did Jesus do? He got his little apron, he got some water and a basin, and he just began to wash their feet. You know, I don't go in there and say, I'm, I'm a teacher, and I'm going to teach no, I say, like Romaine, he has a book on the, on, the, on the top of the book. It's a plunger. And I will, I will pick up vomit. I will empty trash. I will prove myself that I'm a servant. And if God chooses to do anything else with me, that's his doing. That's the mentality we need to have. Number one, it's a, a heart of humility. The second thing we see in our text today is a life of stability. Because look at verse 28. He says, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. You know, we're going to see throughout this whole thing how kind our Lord is. You know, if someone's over there arguing about who's going to be the greatest, I might say, dude, chillax and give him a second chance. If they continue to argue about who's the greatest, they want to be the greatest, I probably would say, dude, you know, you better settle down. (laughs) And then they do it again the third time, confirmation. This is really their heart. They just want to be the greatest. You know, my mentality would probably be get out of town. I don't want that kind here. But the Lord, he's so gracious with them. He says, you know, I want to talk to you not to have that heart. Be a servant. Okay, secondly, as he's ministering to them, he begins to say something kind of nice. He says, you know, one thing I like about you disciples here is that you've continued with me in my trials. You are those who have continued with me in my trials. Why is he saying that? Well, because John chapter 6, verse 66, gives a description of disciples that didn't continue with him. Judas would also be an example of an individual who didn't continue with him. And what I've found in life as Christians, and I have to share this with you because, man, I want you to be in heaven and I want you to be used by God, is that as you get hit with the trials of life and whatever they are, you know, because you are a Christian, because you are with Jesus, because you're connected with Jesus, because you are a target Uh, Because you love Jesus, I want you to just continue with him. You see, there has to be a heart of humility 
And there has to be a heart of stability because I have seen a lot of times there's roller coaster Christians and they're up and down and they're all around and they are so emotional and sometimes they'll you know, pray and sometimes they'll read, sometimes they won't, sometimes they go to church, sometimes they don't. They'll take a few weeks off and it's like, man, where is your stability? Where's your commitment? Where's your consistency? Well, I got hit by a trial. You know what? We all do. Don't let it rock your world. The Lord says, you know, one thing I like about you guys, and I am blessed, verse 28 is, you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And so he says in verse 29, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You know, I have a good friend right now who is going through a tremendous, tremendous trial. And he had back surgery and and he can't he can't move around like he used to. He can't walk like he used to. He's almost bedridden. What do you tell him? How can you encourage him? to continue and to carry on. Well, yeah, the Lord can heal him if the Lord wants to, and of course we would pray for that. But of course, you know, the main motivation we have to continue on in this wicked and fallen world is what's going to happen in the next world. Right? The Bible says that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed one day. You know, and, I, and I've gone through small trials. Who knows what God has ahead for me? I don't know. For some of you here, you're going through tremendous trials. I want to encourage you. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and know that there is this eternal reward that is waiting for you. And not only that, we know, of course, the Lord will work all these trials for good and God has his purposes and we're right in the middle of all this. Maybe you're a Job and, you know, you just don't understand it. God says, trust me. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I do know this, that the Lord promised these guys a couple of things. Number one, he promised them fellowship. You know, that's worth it right there. Fellowship. You're going to come over and we're going to grow up together. Some might consider this to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. It might even be more uh, beyond that. And there's lessons in the Bible. You guys got to look forward to that fellowship. There's a real neat story in the Old Testament about when David became king. And when David became king, he didn't have this insecurity complex or whatever. He just said, hey, man, are there any descendants of Saul that I can just bless? And do you guys remember the story of the, he found one of Jonathan's sons by the name of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth? That's a cool name. You should name your son Mephibosheth. I, I think that's a really cool name. What had happened was when the kingdom was changing, Mephibosheth was dropped and he was lame in his legs. Mephibosheth was kind of rescued, but he couldn't walk. Mephibosheth is kind of like 
uh, uh, an illustration of all of us here, that we all pretty much should have died, that we all could not walk, that we all lost everything, so to speak. But then one day David finds him. And most kings, you know what they would do? You guys know what most kings would do, right? They would kill any descendants of the former king. But David, who is a picture of Jesus, what does he do? He says, Mephibosheth, get over here. Ziba, get over here. I want you to take care of this guy. I want you to give him land. And Mephibosheth, here it is. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. You will eat at my table every day. Imagine that. Eating at the king's table every day. And God says, yeah. That's what's going to happen with us. This life is a vapor. This life, it's going to be gone one day. This life soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. You know, when you think about Jesus nailed to a cross, all the pain, all the torture, all the humiliation that he went through, what got him through all that? The joy that was set before him. You see, this joy of fellowshipping with the Father has got to be set before us. Not only will we fellowship with the Father, we will also function for the Father Because it says right there in verse 30 that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we're not going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. They will. But you and I will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, but she got to overcome. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, and he overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. You see, as we're faithful during the trials, and we don't have this heart of instability, and I've seen it where people are up and down and all around, but you're just consistent in your walk and commitment to Jesus Christ, then God says, You know, you've continued with me, and one day you'll be rewarded by me with fellowship and function. And you know how the Bible talks about how we're going to get crowns? You guys probably read about crowns, right? And we we know the the group casting crowns, right? You guys like them? All right, you're saved. Okay. And so we always think, well, I'm going to take the crown and I cast them at Jesus' feet. And it's true, we're casting our crowns. But remember, those crowns mean something. God will crown you one day. And you're going to rule and you'll have this responsibility in this vicinity. It's all based on what? On our stability. Because here's the thing. A lot of people, they come and then they're there for a while and then the fire fizzles out and for whatever reason, they're gone. And the Lord says, no, you need number one, humility. Number two, you need to understand the stability. And then number three, look what we read here. The Lord teaches them lessons of ministry In verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, kick it at the bottom. 
No, that's not what he says. No. He says, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. You know what the third thing is? And we have to have a good grip on this thing called grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, And you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, people who don't understand grace won't go far in ministry. Number one, you won't extend grace to others. And therefore, what ends up happening is you will not experience the grace from God. Now, don't get me wrong. This grace is not a license to sin, and God knows such a heart. God knows an individual who presumptuously and insistently and defiantly sins. God knows that. But God also knows the individual who's growing and who's learning. And maybe they stumble along the way. We've got to know that God really is a God of grace. God really is a God of second chances. And, you know, it's interesting. When you look at the text right here, the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Now, there's a couple other times where the Lord repeats names, uh, Mary, Mary, or maybe Saul, Saul, Acts chapter 9, Luke chapter 10. You know, but he really wants to get their attention, Simon, Simon, listen. Satan, our adversary, has asked for you. Okay, now the word you in the Greek is plural. He's asked for all of you. Right? Now we know that's the way the, the Bible works. Satan is not allowed to do anything unless he gets God's permission. Now I'm not saying he necessarily has a conversation with God every time like he did in the book of Job. But I do know this. God will not allow him to go beyond what God has permitted him to do. And so Satan asks for all of them. But here's what ends up happening. Not all of them fall in the same way. Some of them would abandon the Lord. John didn't. But Peter was the only one who not only abandoned Christ, but denied Christ. He denied him. I do not know the man. Over and over and over again. You know, it's kind of interesting. The Lord said, he's asked for all of you. And you know what Peter did? You know, we read it right here. Look at verse 33. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I mean, Peter even said, when you harmonize the Gospels, even if all of them deny you, I will never deny you. I mean, I think that Peter just blew it like the most with his overconfidence and his pride and his arrogance and then his audacity to deny Jesus three times who was in the process of dying for him. Such a big sin. But what does the Lord do? He just shows him this grace. And he doesn't say, well, when you return to me, then maybe I'll let you have this little place over here on the, in the corner. No, he says, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And, and what did he do? Is he, he put him to this place of, of leadership. Even when Peter went fishing in John chapter 21, you know, the Lord went after him. Even when Jesus was sending the message through the 
the women and the angels, they said, go and tell Peter, Peter. And he went fishing for Peter and he restored Peter. And Peter was the one that was used on the day of Pentecost. Peter was the one that was just allowed to be the one that opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. And when I look at that, I just see how gracious God really is. You know, the Lord says in verse 32, I have prayed for you. Simon, Simon indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as we. He wants to rock your world, but I have prayed for you. You know, if you denied me three times, oh, that guy over there, whatever it is you want to say about me, I doesn't deserve to be a pastor. I don't know him. He's a jerk. Whatever it is, I don't know if I'd pray for you. I'd pray on you. I don't know if I would pray for you. The Lord says, I'll pray for you. And that's his position, you know. Why did he tell him that? Why did he tell him that I, I prayed for you. Well, more than likely, when Peter was in the pit of condemnation and despair, those words of Jesus would resonate within his heart. You know what? He still loves me. As a matter of fact, he's praying for me. And we read that over and over again in the scriptures about God being our advocate. First John chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord Jesus is our advocate. In John chapter 17, verse 9, the Bible says that Jesus said, I pray for them. In John 17, verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So he's praying for his disciples, right? And then in the same chapter, verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Can you imagine Jesus praying for you? You know, if I wanted to, I could probably, we could probably hook up after service and I could probably try to find the best Christian here. Let's see. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. That one right there, man. The best Christian. And I could ask you to pray for me. And I would be so comforted to know they're praying for me. But imagine to know that Jesus is praying for you. Now, does that make it a slam dunk? No, you still have a will. You're not a robot. You still have to choose. But there is that opportunity and that there is that freedom that we have to know that he is our intercessor. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In Hebrews 7 verse 25 it says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we see here, first of all, this lesson in humility, this lesson, secondly, in stability, thirdly, this lesson in grace. Peter was overconfident, but thank you, Lord, that Peter was under grace. And then the last thing we see right here begins in verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And so they said, nothing. And then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me, 
and he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Principles of ministry. Lord, I really want you to work in my life. And Lord, I really want you to work through my life. And so, Lord, teach me humility. Lord, give me stability. God, help me to understand grace. And Father, please help me to understand my human responsibility. That's the last thing. We have this responsibility. You know, the Lord said, the first time that I sent you out, you guys remember, you didn't have a knapsack or, you know, a money bag or, or you didn't even have sandals. You didn't have a sword. Did I provide for you? Yes. Did I protect you? Yes. See, that's established first. God's sovereignty, right? But he says, now things are going to change. They're going to kill me. And, you know, they, they hate me. They're going to kill me. And so they're going to hate you too. Things are going to change. It's not always going to be that easy. And so I need you to know that ultimately it's God doing the work, that it's God's sovereignty in this whole thing. But I also want you to know that there is this human responsibility that you have. You want to go on a missions trip? Yeah, I want to go to Cambodia next year. I think it would be so cool. And so God's going to do it. And so there you go and you start praying and that's all you do. Pray. And God says, get a job. (laughs) God says, yeah, there's this divine sovereignty that's involved, but there's also the human responsibility. Go and start working, man. And you start, you know, providing that money bag. You know, there's a lot of discrepancy as far as the swords, but Lord, wait a minute, how does the sword work? I mean, Lord, you said that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. How does that work? And, and what we find, you guys, in life, and we get to notice as Christians, because some people will say, no, you can't have a sword, you can't have a gun, because Jesus said if they sap you on one cheek, you give them the other, right? But remember the context there. That's not talking about somebody hurting my family. That's talking about somebody insulting me. You want to insult me? Go ahead. Slap me on the cheek. But if you want to hurt my family because I'm a Christian, I have the right and I have the responsibility to protect them. I trust in the Lord and his sovereignty, but, you know, if necessary, I might have me a a sword or I might have me a killer chihuahua watchdog or whatever it is, you know. I do my part. The Lord is just teaching them principles of ministry that we wouldn't get weird. That we wouldn't do things like the world does. And that as we have this heart, we understand this whole battle that we're in, that God will use our life to reach the lost. I was reading this week about a guy named Charles Simeon. And he was a, an aristocrat. Do they call it aristocrat or aristocrat? One's a movie and one's a... I'm just messing with you. Anyways, this guy was an aristocrat. And anyways, he got saved and uh, it was over in Harvard. uh, Actually, Cambridge. And uh, amazing work that God did in his life. And he eventually became a pastor. Believe it or not, it was three years later. 
But for 34 years, he experienced opposition. I mean, they would not show up. They would lock the pews. They even locked them out of his own church. Imagine that, you know, where he was the, the pastor. But he just, he never gave up. He ended up serving in that church for 54 years. And after 34 years, there was this breakthrough that God gave to him. Why? Because he never, he never quit. You know, I know for some of you here today, you know, you've gone through a lot and I don't know, maybe you feel convicted or condemned or you want to give up or whatever the case may be. And I just pray that that after a study like this, understanding really the clarification of how things are and really understanding the grace that Jesus is here to give you, that you and I, that we would have a heart for a new start. And we're here and we say, Lord, teach me humility. Lord, give me stability. Lord, help me to get a good grip and understanding of what grace really is. And Father, help me to understand the human responsibility in all this. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I'll close with this, is Proverbs 21, verse 31. You guys remember that proverb? It says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. And what does that mean? That means that we do our part and God does his part, right? I feed my horse, I train my horse, I talk to my horse, I comb my horse's hair, I do everything to get that horse ready, right? But when it's the day of battle, who gives us the deliverance? It's the Lord. And so we need to pray and understand that everything is up to him, but we need to work as if Everything's up to us. And see, and that's where we have this balance, you guys. I pray that the Lord would move in your hearts. If you're here as a Christian, that God would just use your life to the fullest extent with your family, your friends, and to the ends of the earth. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that today would be the day you give your life to Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, what a joy it is to study your word together, Lord. I pray that we would, Lord, just as a result of just your word, be humble people, faithful where you've placed us. And if you ever do lift us up, so to speak, that we would serve. Lord, we would serve. Father, I pray that we would continue with you through the trials of life, that we wouldn't, like John 66, stop walking with you because you alone have the words of eternal life. Lord, let everybody here continue with you, Lord. Father, I pray that we would get a good understanding of what grace is, not abusing it, Lord, never abusing it, but truly using it, receiving that grace, even in our own life. And Father, I pray that as a congregation, we would understand our human responsibility, whether it's a money bag or a knapsack or a sword or however that works out, Lord God, that we, even in those things, would trust you. And Lord, you would do a great work. Use our lives, Lord, I pray. And as we partake of communion now, Lord, I pray you minister to our hearts and just help us, Lord, to examine our own life, to just ask you how this applies to me personally, And then to fix our eyes on Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we lift this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to partake of the cup and the bread. So you guys hold on to that. And then we'll.